this episode of Investors and Operators, we sit down for part two with Lauren Mulholland, founding partner at Middle Ground Capital. So it has been a couple years and we have a lot to cover. So in this episode, we're gonna be covering fund one lessons, fund two update, uh, hiring, ESG, key lessons from 2020 and COVID because you did deals, you did what, six deals? Six or deals last year, yeah. Six deals during COVID and, and we'll wrap up with uh, uh, initiatives with uh, women in the industry and, and what middle ground and what Lauren uh, is doing. So, all right, fun one. <laughs> Actually, let's just kind of go on the, the high level update, kind of facts yeah. and figures about middle ground today. Started in 2018. What's the up here on middle ground? Okay, well, we've got a lot to update you on. Um, as you know, we started the firm in 2018. Mm -hmm. Since then, uh, we've grown from three people uh, who started the business to now over 45 people. And as you know, that's across two different locations. And so we've been managing that cultural shift as we've been yeah. growing both of those teams. We've also deployed a lot of capital. Um, we've done 10 transactions in this period of time, six of which were done last year. Um, we've got seven portfolio companies and then we've completed three add-ons and our pipeline is really strong right now. It's a very crazy M&A market, which I think everybody is aware of, uh, but that's very exciting and that's also helped us to uh, raise fund too. Um, we are uh, very close to having final closes on um, just about a billion dollars of capital. Uh, actually end up being a little bit over a billion dollars of capital which is um, pretty crazy to think about. In three years ago, uh, we didn't even have any income. So <laughs> a lot how, how has changed did in that you period go, of time. How many months did you go without any income? I mean, it was at least six months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh, fun times in entrepreneurship. Yeah, fun times when you have uh, two young kids at home and a husband being like, why did you do that again? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Um, so today is different, though. Um, so yeah. fun, fun to, you know, over 45 people, yep. 50 people, did you say? Over 45, 45. yeah. Two offices between New York and Kentucky, uh, seven platforms. We're in now the third iteration of an office in New York. That's right, yes. Um, That's been a substantial portion of my time <laughs> is uh, growing from multiple offices into where we are today. Well, let's talk about uh, growing and, and just kind of hiring needs. What, what positions are you hiring for uh, in, you know, in the next couple months or currently? Yeah, well, I think one of the uh, lessons that we've learned uh, over the last three years, but importantly in 2020, is having a diversity of, of deal sources and where it's coming in from. Yeah. I mean, there are over a thousand intermediaries that we could be calling on at any given time, not to mention you know, proactive outreach to targets that we want to be acquiring. And so as we are looking to start deploying our second fund and and raising you know, fund, like sub subsequent series of funds, we really need to be expanding our sourcing team uh, to make sure that we're seeing all of the, um, the available opportunities out there. So we will be making a few hires around that. Uh, we will also be expanding our operations team. Um, there's, with an increasing portfolio, we, we kind of need more people at the VP level that oversees the project management for the initiatives that we underwrite during our deals. What's a typical background for that on the operations side? You know, I, I remember, I think, you know, one of the recent team members came there like an engineer at Toyota. Yeah. Um, are you looking for people who come from industry or come from like, you know, consulting background? What kind of uh, people are you looking for? We're typically looking for people who have an industry background. Um, and we look for people where that industry background aligns with the businesses that we're investing in. 
Um, so it's usually some type of manufacturing business or some type of industrial B2B business. Okay. But it depends on the role. We have you know, VPs of operations where it's more project management role and they have responsibility for portfolio companies. And then we have sort of tactical people who have a very specific background and skill set. You know, we have one individual on our team who's solely responsible for managing all the equipment and all the CapEx forecasts at all of our business because that's what his background is. Right now, we just recently posted on LinkedIn a position for somebody to help us run all of the sales and support our sales teams at all of our portfolio companies. So and that's so a, like a senior salesperson who has experience in industrials, B2B, and just really understands from a senior perspective, sales and marketing. Yeah, and like what incentives we can put in place for our teams, what tools, what processes, what systems we can put in place for our teams, what data we need to be tracking the progress that those sales teams are making. It's something we're really excited about because it's it's you know a growth mindset that our ops team will be bringing to our portfolio companies. Um, on the on the BD side, are you looking for like any type of BD talent? You know, junior, mid level. It's a good question. We actually are looking for two different types of people. We're looking for one person who can work with our existing team to be kind of outward facing and to yeah. be going out and really soliciting deals. And then we're looking for one person who's more analytics focused and who can go through target list and who can scrub through data and who can be responsible for making sure deal cloud, which is our CRM system, is the best that it can be. So it's, it's two completely different skill sets, uh, but very important to, to round out our team. On the uh, internal or analytics side, are you, are you looking for somebody who does come from an analytics background? You know, maybe they did data science at a junior level, for example, or what are you kind of looking for? Uh, you know, I think it could be somebody that has an analytical background. It could also just be somebody who has a transaction background and wants to do something different. Okay. But definitely some level of analytical and research-oriented background. Okay. Let's rewind to... Fund one. And we did a, a video maybe a little bit over a year ago on kind of key lessons from the fund one raise. But I think it's interesting now that you've done fund two, mm -hmm. there's that added time to really have to look back on fund one and in the maturity of being now at fund two. Um, what are some of the you know key lessons for emerging managers who maybe they're considering? a fund one, maybe they are just kicking off or they're in the middle of it. You know, looking back, what, what do you see as some of the key takeaways from, you know, your successful raise and maybe things that you would advise to do differently? <laughs> um, I think one thing that we did really well was put a strategy in place and communicate that strategy and vision to the investor marketplace. First of all, we were very thoughtful about where we wanted to go over you know, a 10-year period of time. And we not only kind of modeled out how the team would be growing over that period of time, but, but also like what it meant for us as partners. And so that meant that investors didn't have any questions. And we had already kind of thought through some of the questions that investors were asking us. But I think most importantly, what was helpful about this is we're now you know, three and a half years in. And we can point to our original strategy and we can say, we executed against everything that we had in our strategy. We might've done it faster than expected, yeah. <laughs> but we, we, we stayed in line with our strategy and true to what we told you we were going to do. And that's just fundamentally what we try to do. We try to do what we say we're going to do. And so 
being proactive about communicating that vision to the marketplace and then actually executing on it has really helped us a lot as we've um, embarked on fund two and, and beyond. So I think that was very helpful. Um, to that point, I think staying laser focused on investing in businesses that really do line up with your strategy and with your value add to the marketplace is the second most important thing that we've done. Did, I mean, did you feel tempted at times? And it's like, God, we just need to get a deal done. That I mean, we get deals in all the time that we're like, oh, maybe we could do that deal or you know, maybe we could do this deal. But one of the most important things we do is, is screen through a very large funnel and narrow it down to really what lines up with our investment thesis. And so it's understanding how each of the companies that we look at line up against our metrics, our, you know, how, how we can quantify them against thresholds that we have, and how they answer thesis questions for us. And it's really important for us to be able to identify and quantify a value creation plan for our operations team, because part of our value add is deploying them to our portfolio company so that they can drive value at those portfolio companies. And if we can't identify that, that deal's not for us, even if it's a great deal. So we do get tempted to look at those deals all the time because there are obviously merits to a lot of deals that just simply don't line up for us. And as we've been in the market now, we can point to you know, the specific value add that our team is bringing for every single one of the deals in our portfolio company. And they all line up very well with our strategy. So it's, it's what people expected to see from us and it's what we've executed. On the, on the first part of the strategy, I mean, it, What's kind of like the, the the next level of depth around that? Because it sounds like you know everyone would understand like have a clear strategy, stick to it. But what is like like how can we dimensionalize that or unpackage it a little bit more? Well, I think like actually what happened through COVID in 2020 is a good example. You know, we had made four investments going into COVID. Um, all four of those investments, we followed our typical strategy. And our strategy, especially from an operations perspective, is to focus first on like low-hanging fruit initiatives, specifically with respect to networking capital, where we can generate cash upfront. And the reason that we do that is it helps us to delever our businesses. Right. And then once we've done that and we've changed the cash conversion cycle, then we move to implementing initiatives from an EBITDA enhancement perspective that drive long-term EBITDA improvement. And so when we hit COVID, we had already executed against delevering initiatives, you know, whether it's working with customers to improve our collection days, whether it's working with vendors to extend them out, whether it's putting certain plans in place with um, vendors to have payment plans, um, and then whether it's rationalizing and right-sizing the inventory base of the company. You know, those things generate cash up front and allow us to pay down debt and put us for those portfolio companies in a good position when COVID happened. And we, uh, we were able to withstand that because we had already repaid a lot of debt. From fund one on, what do you think are some, you know, maybe some missteps during that? Mm -hmm. I mean, everything was going fast and yeah. I mean, it's su <laughs> successful, but like, yeah. what are some things that maybe you would do, you would advise to do differently or just kind of be more conscious of? I think the biggest thing that I would have done differently is we have grown so much and we've brought on so many resources that I think we did that while having good training in place, but not great training in place. And so I think making sure that we had the resources internally dedicated to training people up front um, would have 
really kind of helped our organization to potentially yeah. even achieve more than we have. And it's a really big focus of where we are today is working with our, our new people. And we've made a, a very specific decision to hire people from all backgrounds. And there, that, there's a lot of great things about that because it brings different perspectives, it adds diversity, and it just, you know, overall, I think, helps to create a different type of culture than what you see at other private equity firms. But if that model is going to be successful, we have to be dedicating our resources internally to training them. And especially where we are in the M&A market cycle right now, our resources for training are also trying to get deals done. And so, uh, you know, I think improving on our training processes is a huge focus. It's interesting because with all the operational expertise that the team has, do you feel like that was just more outwardly focused? Like, hey, we really know how to, when we buy a business, you know, operational improvements, but it was just so focused outwardly and not applying like similar skill sets internally or just the mental bandwidth and commitment to the internal. I think it's just simply that we grew so fast across every single team. But, you know, I think it's, it's, we refer to it, uh, you know, as growing pains, yeah. you know, so, uh, but we're, I think out of all of the things that we have accomplished in the last three and a half years, the number one thing that we are the most excited about is actually the team. We haven't had any professional turnover at the whole firm in three and a half years. And I think that says a lot. And so, you know, that's something that all three of us are really proud of. But that doesn't mean that we're perfect and there are definitely improvements that need to be made and we're making those improvements. Going over to Fund 2, you know, how was Fund 2 that experience different from fund one in terms of more than like the, if you even want to talk about the fundraising side or on the uh, operational side um, or whatever direction you think it'd be inter interesting. Well, in fund one, we were selling an idea and a strategy and a vision and three people. You know, I think one of the, the things that we did well is we built out our team, but what we did in fund two we brought a lot of our team members into the fundraising process. Mm. I mean, it's not common that associates get access to LPs during a fundraising process. It's not common that partners <laughs> are into, like certain partners in certain firms like are included and even know the LPs or have it as opposed yeah. to like, you have these 10 words that you're saying and then yeah. we're at the table. We just, we're very transparent with our investors and we're very transparent with our people that work at our firm. And so that's, and we also think that our people are some of our biggest assets. And so we were very comfortable working with our teams to present you know, case studies on all of the portfolio companies that we own today, walking through you know, what we underwrote in our plan and how we're performing against that plan. And, and that was presented to our LPs by associates, by senior associates, by VPs. And so I think that that, um, that has been something that's been well received. All right, ESG. So. You know, everywhere in your branding now, you can't not see PRI. Mm -hmm. And can you just kind of, you know, unpackage what does that practically mean at the fund level? What does that practically mean at the portfolio company level? I, I think it gets a lot of lip service with ESG and people talk about it, but I'm curious to know, like, what does it actually mean and how you operate the business? So, First of all, you probably noticed that our logo, which is a used to be a blue fish for and the year, now. is now earth green. <laughs> Whose idea was this? That was John's idea. <laughs> I'm sure that doesn't surprise you. 
Um, but our logo is now Earth Green for the year, for just for this year. It's sort of a commemorative logo, if you will, for 2021, um, because that is a really big emphasis of ours this year. And so we actually established a task force internally across the back office, the operations team and the investment team. And we pulled people together from all those teams and said, we want to be best in class as it relates to our ESG reporting and analysis. What should we be doing for this? And so that team actually brought the PRI to us. And as part of that, we decided to move forward with the, um, the application to, to join and commit to their principles. And so we're going through all of the um, requirements and reporting that is required for that over the course of this year. And I made some good progress on that. But more tactically, internally, how we actually handle and evaluate ESG is really twofold. First, it does play into our underwriting. And then second, it plays out across our portfolio company where we're track portfolio companies where we're tracking this information. And so, you know, one example, we closed a deal in December of last year where there were a few things that we wanted to be investing in the business so that we could improve the ESG statistics of them. You know, one thing very simple is like improving some of the safety protocols that they have, making sure that everybody has the appropriate PPE to wear around the plant, putting in the appropriate um, barriers to make sure that people weren't going in certain locations. So just setting aside a budget for that um, is a very small thing that we did. We also set aside and underwrote that all of the employees that were being paid below $15 an hour were actually getting increases in their wages until the point where they were making $15 an hour. And that's something that we've committed to across our entire portfolio, um, which is a, a substantial investment in our portfolio companies. And then we also underwrote a material, like multi-million dollar investment in improving the company's facilities for both environmental purposes for the actual environment, but also for our employees. Um, and um, also just, you know, a more appropriate structural environment for those people. Do, do you think it feels tangibly different now, the application of ESG to the portfolio than, and not just with middle ground, but maybe in the industry now versus like three years ago? Absolutely. Five years ago. Yes, I do. So I, private I think, equity is doing I think, good for... I think many people in private equity are doing very well and they're, they're taking it seriously. And it's not, probably not everybody, but I, we discuss it all the time with our investors. Um, and that's really where it needs to start. The investors need to be requiring their GPs to be you know, putting these practices and these policies in place. Have you we, seen that we've with, been with doing LPs? that proactively. Have yeah, you seen that with just like generally speaking with LPs yeah. and what your conversation with other firms that are raising? You're just like, yeah, LPs are actually, this is, this is not ad hoc. Yeah. It's not inconsistent. It is part of every discussion. It is part of every discussion. And, you know, I'm having other partners at other private equity firms reach out to me asking, you know, what do we do? And we're more than happy to share that with anybody. These are not, this is not to us you know, an internal competitive advantage thing. This is something that everybody should be doing and it should be best practice. But we also at the portfolio company level, we've in installed and instituted um, a tracking mechanism called Tablecloth, mm -hmm. which is a software that all of our portfolio companies have installed that tracks all of the data across certain metrics for all E, S, and G um, data points that we want to be tracking. Well, it's interesting because you know, when you speak about transparency, I remember last year when we were having the uh, webinar and John was on the panel, like he screen shared the statistics. Yeah. And it's, 
might make some people cringe on it. She was like, middle ground is it compliant? Um, but no, <laughs> but it was like, but that is absolutely on brand for you are transparent and you're trying yeah. to make the industry better. Yeah. And it, and I think it's it's really indicative of a mentality of transparency. When it's playing into our deals too. And we want to continue to be doing deals where there's a specific ESG story where we can be improving the company on those metrics. And maybe there's even an added benefit for like a tallest deal that we acquired in December where the product itself is an ESG story. I mean, they're supplying solar I-beams, which are steel foundations for the solar industry, helping to improve the environment. So that's an added benefit on top of what we are actually investing in the company to improve their ESG metrics. That's really cool. And those, those are really good specific examples. Um, and I think that the industry, you know, does have it front of mind. And, and it's, it's, I think, important for the public to see that. Absolutely. Because you know, private equity headlines and are not always consistent with reality. Absolutely. I think that's a big problem for our industry. Absolutely. We get a really bad rap overall, um, but I think there's a lot of people doing good things. Let's think about kind of the key lessons from 2020 and you, know, you bought six businesses. So not, not just actually on the acquisition front, but let's just kind of think along maybe three parts. What are some of the key lessons from 2020 and during the pandemic from a sourcing perspective, acquisition, you did six deals, and maybe from an operational perspective that you're going to use going forward? Yeah. Well, I think one of the biggest things that actually really helped us in 2020 was in 2019, we started to develop some industry theses and to do some more thesis-driven investing, which is we're looking for businesses that line up with our strategy and everything that we um, you know, are looking for, for our, it within our main fund. But we're also looking on top of that for a couple of businesses to have exposure to certain trends across the mobility landscape and the infrastructure landscape. And right now we're in the process of developing a thesis around Industry 4.0. And so having those theses already prepared meant that we had done work to know what sectors and what areas within those industries we wanted to be investing in, what we wanted to look for. Um, it also, because we'd been having lots of conversations with banks around our theses and we'd been educating the marketplace on where we wanted to invest, we were getting access to better deal flow. We were getting access to more limited processes where some of the banks would think of us you know, as more of like a, a strategic or, or a highly interested sponsor versus just a generalist sponsor. and. When you think, think about the deals we did in 2020, of the six deals, four of them were aligned with our mobility and infrastructure thesis. Yeah. Yeah, keep, uh, keep on going. Um, so what are some, some of the other key lessons, either from sourcing or transactions or you know, operations? Yeah, so I think in, in addition to the like, building out theses, I think another lesson that we learned was you have to be flexible. Um, you know, when we first started the fund, we did not anticipate being active in 363 processes. We had that skill set from working at our prior firm, but it wasn't what we wanted to do when we started Middle Ground. We, we are trying to buy good businesses and making them great businesses. And we are still doing that. But what happened during COVID is a number of businesses went through bankruptcy processes because of a bad balance sheet and because of too much leverage. And so we were able to work through a couple of more distressed situations and, and specific to the process itself that, you know, we had to be proactive, we had to be proactive and flexible around. Do you, do you now apply that lesson into 
your investment theses and like, hey, what's the real big, what's the wor- wor- the meaning of worst case now just got you know, redefined? Is it, do you think about that as you're going through the transaction process and not just modeling, but more conceptually, what are the, what's the worst case scenario? We are always looking at downside protection, um, and even more so in a case like that, where you know the the transaction process in and of itself is more complex, and there have been you know there is a history of bankruptcies. So yeah. we will it, it it does definitely rise to the surface even more than it already does, but it also vastly plays into you know the valuation and the purchase price that, and the structure that we're considering for those sellers. And we've had to also, you know, we we had to be not only flexible around our willingness to do those deals, but also much more flexible around the structures with which we're doing those deals in. They're not plain vanilla deals. They have more complex structures. And that allows us to be more creative. And that also brings another like toolkit that we can apply to new deals down the road that we would not have had had we just been doing you know, good to great traditional LBOs. So I think bringing that skill set to bear in 2020 was very important. How do you think that you've changed in the past, you know, since 2018 from maybe like a skill set perspective of, you know, managing a business, starting a business with uh, John and Scott? Um, Yeah, just how do you think that you've evolved in the past few years? I I mean, a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a lot of things that I work on. I have have an executive coach who kind of helps me with, um, you know, everything like from how do I manage my team to how do I sell a vision to how, you know, how, how am I feeling on any given day? You know, there's a lot of things that, that come into it, but you know, my entire career has been predominantly around execution. And when you um, move from execution into not only management, but also leadership there, it's completely different skill sets. And so I've been picking them up along the way, but I've also been able to work with an executive coach who's helped me with that. How long have you been working with a coach? For nine months now. Um, And then I also in May completed like a week long session with the Center for Creative Leadership and did um, an on the ground training with them, which um, worked through you know a number of leadership topics. And I think I learned a lot of things coming out of that, but the first is sort of what my superpowers are based on 360 degree feedback from everybody. And so I'm like learning how to really lean into those superpowers and become known for those things. And then also what my developmental areas are and you know what steps I can be taking to get better at those, those things. Well, that's leading to the next question, which is what are your superpowers? <laughs> <laughs> Learning agility is one of them, like always wanting to, to learn new things and pick up things quickly. Um, communication is, is one of those things. And then also uh, the ability to uh, impact and have influence internally. Those are the, the three things that came out of my 360. What, what do you think came out of it where you felt like, hey, I needed to do this, but in reality, it's either somebody else needs to do that or it's just like, I'm never gonna be good at that. And, I, I and that's talking, fine. Yeah, yeah. And, and, that's what that's for me, part of financial it. modeling. Yeah, that's part <laughs> of the and that, That's where I try to hire people where I'm not so good at things, right? Like that's where those are the compliments that you're looking to find. And that's a conversation that I have with my coach. You know, these are your three superpowers. Here are your three development areas. You don't need to go from like a C to an A. You need to go from like a C to a C plus or a B minus. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I. I 
I just hired a coach, uh, not for executive coach, but more like a uh, for triathlon. And I'm like, I've had a coach for 15 years. Yeah. And just even in the dynamics of those discussions, it made me think about, you know, so much stuff I'm not even just even considering about my own development. So like, maybe I should get an executive coach. Yeah. Um, there's someone who I worked with for a year. Uh, he was the former head of strength and conditioning for the Yankees, Dana Cavalea, and just especially last year when you know it was difficult yeah and with this in a small business and he just he's like jordan you just make the pizza make yeah. the pizza just focus on making the pizza yeah it's like is this what you do for a living yeah and he's like he's like why are you overcomplicating? i don't need to give you a powerpoint on where you need to develop he's like yeah. we need to focus on the most simplest simple things get those right and then we can start and it was like i couldn't see that part about myself unless I had his outside perspective. Yeah. Um, so over to next topic, which is women's wing. Yes. All right, cool. I saw the post. I just want to make sure I'm not butchering what it's called. Um, so what is women's wing? So we started women's wing internally um, during women's history month in March. And the, we've grown very quickly, as I mentioned. And so as part of that, we've hired a lot of women at the time it was 17. I think we're closer to 20 now. But we want to create a space for the women to get together and build relationships and bond. But we also want to bring third parties and external people into our world and help to tell us about, you know, whatever it is that they do. So we've got a series of um, areas that we want to be spending more time on, you know, that we think are important for women, whether it's um, mental health, whether it's work-life balance, whether it's um, having responsibility for your finances, whether it's building confidence, whether it's public speaking, whether it's negotiating for yourself, uh, whether it's even just like preliminary or, or, you know, moderate or advanced leadership skills. So we've wrote down sort of all these topics. We've got feedback from all the women in the organization around what topics they want to hear about. And then we tried to find either a group of people internally or people externally who could come in and speak on these topics. And so we've done a few so far. We've had people from LFS come in to talk about the importance of owning your own finances and of women really knowing their place as it relates to money, because some people are very uncomfortable with their own money. We've had, we did one on um, a woman in our organization is actually a, you know, a, a dance fitness instructor. And so she led a class for us when a bunch of us were in Kentucky. And so we all got together at a studio and did a big class together. And that was a lot of fun. And we zoomed in the team from New York. Um, we had Lydia Finette come in. She uh, is the um, head of auctioning at Christie's. And she also wrote a book called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. And she came yeah. in a couple of weeks ago and her message is really just one of female empowerment. But, you know, there's just a lot of important uh, themes that are driven home to women about, you know, entering a room and knowing exactly what you're going to say when you start so that you don't kind of fumble over your words if you're public speaking. Like you build that confidence in the first 15 seconds and you do the same thing every time so that you feel that confidence and then it kind of gets you going, Ma making sure that you're kind of acting yourself and you're negotiating on behalf of yourself and you're not trying to play a role for somebody else. You're embracing the fact that you're a woman and you're different and that's okay. And that might actually sell better than if you were trying to be somebody else. 
you know, those, those types of just reminders and words of encouragement were really helpful for our team to hear. And she's also just like super witty and, and fun to talk to. So it's very entertaining. <laughs> What's her name again? Lydia Finette. And her book is? The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. All right. Yeah. And so we are, we've got a few coming up. Uh, we're trying to do a negotiations session with an executive coach. We're trying to do a leadership session with one of our business school professors. Um, we're trying to do a, se- a session on implicit bias. I hope we can do another workout session because I've really enjoyed that. <laughs> well, if you need any female veterans from the special operations or fighter pilot communities to talk about leadership, uh, I might have a few. Actually, I will definitely do that. I have a... Yeah, that would be excellent. Has it been any different in, you know, with having baby number three and, or has it just been like, yeah, or has it been having baby number three and it's fun been- too? And- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, having baby number three is like the best decision that we ever made. Um, oh, can, we, can we actually delete that part? <laughs> You don't want to tell Jane that. <laughs> Let's not tra- translate that to Chinese for my in-laws as well. <laughs> No, I mean, I, uh, it's my first two daughters are 19 months apart. And so there is never a world where my oldest daughter will remember being the only child. They effectively have grown up together almost like twins. And especially because my second child is uh, very tall <laughs> for her age, they're about the same size. So people literally think they're twins. Um, and now three years later, we added a new baby into the mix and just watching them be like big sisters to her has been really awesome. Um, and also I think as we've built out the team, you know, when we first started the firm, Cece, my middle child was seven months old. And so, you know, those are obviously like the more stressful times. And now that we are in a position where we have more resources and, you know, I have a little baby at home and we're very focused on work-life balance for all of our employees. And to do that, you have to lead by example. And so, you know, I do set boundaries where I I do have a period of time in my day, you know, after seven o'clock where nobody's allowed to schedule a meeting with me. You know, if they want to talk to me, we need to do it before I go home, which is usually by 630 so that I can see her before she goes to bed. And then my little, my two bigger kids, they don't go to bed till like late at night. So (laughs) (laughs) I get plenty of time with them. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's it's interesting. We, we, you know, we have an 18 month old and a a four year old. And I, you know, I felt like we're working too much. And then I just realized that we just have to include our four year old into what we were doing. So Mm -hmm. this morning, we're out at 7.30 flying the drone and she learned how to like yeah. use that. And, yeah. and then it, it gets her interested to generally what we do. Yeah. So we don't feel as guilty of like, you know, you know mommy and dad have to go off and do work. Like, yeah, um, I did the same thing. Like last week I brought, had all three kids come in for lunch um, so they could see the office yeah. and run around. I've had my oldest come in after school and sit at the, in the corner and do some drawing and, you know, everybody around here likes to see them too. And now there's, when we first started, I was the only one with kids. We yeah. now have three, uh, sorry, four people who have kids and there's more on the way. So, you know, there's just, pe- it, people are growing up. <laughs> well, and the other, the other interesting part about that is that, you know, people should feel comfortable if the firm creates a culture of long-term thinking. Yes. Like you're out for how many months? Like, okay, like. Oh yeah. Doesn't matter. Like we, we're, we're going to know you for how many years? Like we have a parental and, leave policy. It applies to men and women for months. 
And we have two men that are taking it this year, which I'm really excited for. <laughs> I will miss them, but I will miss anybody who's gone for four months. <laughs> well, we have covered a lot of ground and this is, I am super excited. I've like walking here and just feel the energy and mm -hmm. expanding. So thank you very much for doing this. Yeah, thanks for coming.